management, like involve the people that are actually the ones interacting with the animals because they're the ones that know, uh, they're the ones that need to care for, they're the caretakers of the animals. So they're the ones that the animal rights organizations have the videos on, you know, create a culture of care because really it's a trickle down effect from the top to the bottom. And, and so management is the key. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Ivonic Animal Nutrition. We are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. DSM strives to bring our customers efficient, sustainable poultry solutions, from essential vitamins like HYD to next-generation products like Hyphorius for efficient phosphorus utilization and Biofix to counteract naturally occurring metabolites in feed. Our portfolio is growing as we continue to bring innovation to the poultry industry. Visit dsm.com forward slash ANH to learn more about our newest solutions. Hello and welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. Today I'm here with Dr. Shauna Weimer. Hello and welcome. Hello, thank you so much for having me. Good to see you. Yeah, I'm excited, excited to chat with you today about some aspects of your poultry welfare work. But first, I'm sure everybody is excited to know, how did you start into chickens? How did you get a chicken job? <laughs> you know, I just kind of fell into chickens, actually. Um, as you know, and we're both very proud of, I went to Iowa State for undergrad. Um, I think really I fell into chickens because I just love animals. I've always known since I've been old enough to be asked what I wanted to do. I said I wanted to work with animals. My grandfather uh, unfortunately passed when I was pretty young, but my dad would tell me stories about helping him. Uh, my grandfather was a veterinarian. And so hearing stories about interacting with animals and, you know, kind of back in the 60s and 70s when uh, there was kind of a bartering, you know, like he'd go out and preg check a cow and then get bring some corn home. Like I just thought that that lifestyle sounded so, so great. I'm not going to talk about how they used to castrate cat, uh, cats, but anyway, uh, I just, uh, I, I, I've always loved animals. I, I make a joke that I would work with earthworms, uh, you know, <laughs> that's what happened. But, you know, I, I worked, my, my first project was with Anna Johnson. Uh, after taking her class, I became in love with the field of behavior. And I realized that there was a lot of human aspects of being a veterinarian that uh, can be difficult and ethically difficult. And um, ethics are a big part of animal welfare. And just, I fell in love with it when I took Anna Johnson's class at Iowa State. 
And um, I did a small research project with her, actually temperament testing shelter dogs at the Animal Rescue League in Ankeny. Um, and that was my first start. And then I worked with pigs with her for my master's, worked in the swine industry for a couple of years and decided, you know, I'm really, I was in procurement and just wasn't, I wasn't around the animals enough. And I um, decided to go back to grad school. I sent out hundreds of emails and got 2% response rate from professors. And um, it was either dogs in Norway or chickens in Arkansas. And I decided to go with chickens in Arkansas and the rest is history. <laughs> that is quite a whirlwind. <laughs> and I like to make the joke that I uh, switched from, from pigs to chickens, but I became a hog somehow when I was with chickens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the Arkansas mascot, unfortunately, is not a chicken. <laughs> yes, husk, husk the Razorback. Yeah, some some people I think like to say that size, uh, you know, the Cyclones that uh, he's a he's a chicken, you know, when they're rooting against us. But I think he's some sort of cardinal. Yeah, so. I think he's a cardinal too. I've had this debate yeah. with people who's like, is he he's in a cyclone, but he's like a bird? So yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of things that can't be explained, but I think from a mascot perspective, it's easier for a guy to walk around in a bird suit than <laughs> just a cycle. Yeah, well, that's that's at least what I'm what I'm gonna say. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the uh, the path to your your current employment? How how did you end up where you are now? Yeah, sure. So uh, I did my I actually um, am in my PhD advisor's office. I worked with uh, Yvonne Thaxton and Karen Christensen, co-advised, and I worked on uh, broiler stress and lameness. The title of my dissertation was Non-Invasive Measures of Broiler Stress and Lameness, um, and I can get into that later if you want. Uh, spent time here. I think that they really valued or, or uh, were excited about me as a grad student because both of them had worked in industry for a large, uh, a long time in their careers. And I was working at Hormel as a hog buyer at the time. And I think they, they really valued that I had that industry experience. And so um, I came in and uh, when I graduated, I did a, a postdoc at Purdue with uh, Darren Karcher and Marissa Erasmus and worked on other poultry species. I mostly, I did a little turkey work here, but we did some turkey, duck, laying hen work there. And it was a really great experience, all 15 months of it. And then I uh, went to the University of Maryland and I was there for three years. My position there was predominantly extension. And uh, there are five, and there's uh, they actually have more broilers there than here in Arkansas. They're just condensed really? on the larva. Mm -hmm. That's why uh, high path is such a big deal there. Because, I mean, and uh, worked with uh, some companies quite a bit out there doing grow workshops. Nutrient management is a much more regulated situation in Maryland. So we would do a lot of workshops where growers would get uh, some credits for that. They have to maintain their certification. So a lot of grower education, but doing some applied research with uh, Purdue, Purdue and Mount Air are over there. And, uh, and then I came back here last year. So uh, I'm an assistant professor and the director of the Center for Food Animal Well-Being at my alma mater. I can see the Razorback Stadium from my office window. I have a lot of friends and colleagues here that are awesome and 
it really felt like coming home. I love this Northwest Arkansas area. I'm a lot closer to family in Iowa. So uh, that's sort of been my path. Yeah, that sounds like a win-win. <laughs> so, um, so what are some of the things that you found interesting with working in your extension role versus what you're doing now at, at your, the center and then also doing some research? So uh, there's a lot more, you know, time in a, res- a more research-heavy appointment on granting and publications and things like that, which means more desk time. So yeah. the thing that I miss most about extension is actually going out into the field and, and talking with people. As an applied researcher, applied ethologist, zoology is the study of animal behavior. It's the growers that know. Anything that I mentioned to them about why an animal might do something or a chicken might do something, they already know. They see it. They hear that chicken, their chickens are getting sick before they see any clinical behavioral signs. They're, they're the ones that are actually there. And having those opportunities for those conversations is really what, what drives my research because, like I said, they know they're kind of my uh, sounding board where I say, hey, you know, is this really that important? And they, they'll tell you <laughs> yes or no. I think that, you know, if I can get a grower interested in it, then I really got something going on because, you know, everything's time and money for them because they're the ones doing it. So... Uh, I really enjoyed, um, so part of welfare is obviously auditing, so I'd do some shadow audits and look at belt pinch points in the hatchery or, you know, uh, a big hot topic with, with laying hens is, you know, culling and the macerator, and the the macerator is actually pretty humane because it's instantaneous, but sometimes the distance that the chicks have to travel in the pipe could be longer distances. So that's a consideration that I learned through working with industry that, you know, I hadn't thought that what if they have to travel 200 feet? Well, that probably isn't a good experience, even though it's an instantaneous death. So they, a lot yeah. of them have like a, I don't know, a bowl that they go down into that's instant, but stuff like that. And then working, um, looking at different breeds, uh, produce very into that and enrichments um, and uh, yeah doing a lot of uh, applied research over uh, on the farms we did a big circulation fan looking at um, commercial circulation fans which someone who knows ventilation in chicken houses would say well that's a stir fan and I guess they're just a little bit bigger stir fans that have higher capacity so looking at um, we looked at the behavior of the the, the broilers in terms of like comfort and movement and things like that. And behavior is very, very difficult uh, when there's 30,000 of them and uh, it's hard to see individuals. So that was challenging. And uh, we also tried to look at vocalizations as well, but uh, I learned a lot. It, It gets into physics really, really quickly because sound is actually vibrations. And so like measure in decibels and the wavelength and the frequency and things like that. And, and something that's difficult with vocalizations on commercial farms is there are vocalizations that are the same frequency as the fan noise. And you try to take out the noise, but then you're also taking out some of the vocalizations. So we didn't get as far with the vocalizations as we wanted with that, but um, it's very interesting work. <laughs> Yeah, those are things I wouldn't even think about. <laughs> yes, and field research is so much different than experimental research. You know, in a in a controlled research setting on our research farms, we try to control for absolutely everything except for the factor 
that we're looking at, right? Well, in the field, it turns out the power goes out or a feed line breaks or a water line breaks and, you know, there goes everything or your sensor gets knocked down by equipment. And so it's kind of, I like field research because it's like, well, it happens. You know, if, if we still see an effect of whatever we're looking at, despite seasonality, which is huge, despite house to house variations, flock to flock variation, then that's... um. That's really telling. I think uh, a colleague of mine once put it really well where researchers, like in a research setting, we're trying to build the engine of a car, right? Like we're looking at all the different things, the pistons that make it fire, but extension drives the car. You know, like we, they, we give them the engine and they drive it. So I think that's a good way to look at the difference between research and extension. Yeah, they, they drove whatever we built, so good luck. <laughs> good luck. And then they come back and say, well, it broke. <laughs> you know, like, you didn't consider this thing. Like, uh, is, is there anything that you found with working with farmers that was really kind of surprising? Um, you know, something that they knew a lot about that sort of seemed obvious, but maybe us in the world of academics didn't really think about? Oh, so many. To think of something specific <laughs> was sort of tough. Um but I'll give a really good example with pigs, actually. Um, so I worked at a, a sow coal plant in Des Moines, and then I worked for Hormel in Minnesota. And I remember having a conversation about my, my master's work, and it was this willingness to approach tests. So an animal approaching a human is a measure of fearfulness. Um, by the 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 rationale is that I think with broilers it gets a little difficult because they are as motivated to walk and walking ability and things like that. But but uh, it's a standardized test across species. But I remember telling uh, a big manager about my project and getting really excited and saying, you know, we want animals to come up to us because then they're less fearful. And he looked at me and said. Well, that doesn't work for us because we rely on that fear response for pigs to go past us into the chute. And that was just such an aha moment for me where I thought, huh, and let me tell you, trying to get those fair pigs that like loved people and wouldn't, they were so difficult to work with. So uh, yeah. You didn't want to go that's through really... be around you, right? And that's, that was kind of, I think that really kind of was the aha moment that for my career is you know, sometimes the assumptions in research, you take it out in a field and that's actually contradictory. They actually don't want that. Yeah, that's a really, really good example. <laughs> yeah, something you wouldn't think about, right? Like, yeah, yeah. We, we sometimes depend on an animal's flight distance to get them yeah. to, you know, herding sheep and whatnot. Oh, gosh. Yeah, especially when it's it's not a one-on-one. -on -one. It's not you with one pig and you can move it. It's you and a couple of thousand pigs. And <laughs> maybe that flight response can be really important. <laughs> mm -hmm, for sure. Uh, so what are what are some of the neat topics that researchers are working on right now? Or, or what's needed in the industry? Like what's going on in the land of welfare that is needed and what's going on? <laughs> well, obviously, I have some pretty biased opinions about what I think is most important <laughs> what I'm doing. But um, there's a lot of talk. I, I already mentioned um, the the culling of male chicks oh, yeah. and hatching for laying hens. I know there's been a ton of uh, money by our government and uh, you know other European governments, other governments towards it. I think Germany and France have gone. It is illegal there now. Um, oh, 
I didn't realize that. I mean, I knew it was happening, but I didn't realize the legislation had passed. Mm-hmm. And that, but I've heard that about twenty, they could, they can't. So, so it's innovosexing, right, to prevent the chicks hatching and being macerated. Uh, but I think the technology that's that's uh, been adopted, at least in France, is it's really just feather sexing in ovo. So they're pretty late in development. And I think that there's a certain line that just aren't feather sexable. So they're having difficulties with that. But um, mass depop is always one that I don't, we don't need to talk about that one, I think, with, with HPAI. But definitely in the broiler world, it is growth rate, stocking density, and environmental enrichment. Um, the, the better chicken commitment was uh, first came out. Um, it's this NGO-led um, initiative uh, that first came out in 2016 that uh, that looks at those the different components of broiler production, stocking density, breeds, growth rate, and um, slaughter practices or methods. So. Um, really, the two main methods are, uh, and the most predominant is definitely water bath stunning. And then the other is controlled atmosphere stunning, which uses CO2 and it's used with pigs too. Um, and I'm not sure what percent of the industry uses um, CAS for pigs. I know my hometown has it <laughs> in Marshalltown, but um, I'm not sure about poultry, but um, it's interesting being in my role and, and working with a lot of companies because it's usually someone involved in sustainability. Animal welfare has been linked with sustainability, I think permanently glued now. And I think that there's a lot of um, d- disconnects. There's, there's very, there aren't, there are more situations where the, with the three pillars of sustainability, it's like what social, environmental, and financial sustainability. Well, usually those three are not a win-win-win when we're talking about animal welfare. So, with controlled atmospheric stunning, carbon dioxide is used. Obviously, that's not a sustainable solution for the environment, but it definitely is better for broiler welfare. However, wing damage is a huge issue. Broken wings. During the, 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 the stunning process, the, the birds move around and then that can cause broken wings. And so that's, there's just a bunch of, it, it depends on your perspective of what's most important. Wings, I know, I think the story of wings is they were marketed for the Super Bowl and now they're a huge deal. But before that, they were like thrown away into trim and stuff like that. So wings are an important part of the process now. Um, and for animal welfare control, atmospheric stunning is better, but even especially during COVID, there was a huge shortage. Like Europe has a lot more caste systems and they straight up lost their supply for some of their plants, so. Oh, I didn't realize that the carbon dioxide was a, a pinch point. Mm-hmm, so yeah, the, where do they get it? You know, it has to be a lot of it. Oh yeah, that's so interesting. It is, I've, I've learned a lot about <laughs> things that are not exactly animal welfare to have these conversations. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun to learn. I mean, obviously we're academics because it's fun to learn, right? Uh, Yeah, that's exactly it. It's clearly not Um, for the work-life balance. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. So, of course, it kind of seems like the maceration thing is is big in Europe uh, as well as here. We're kind of catching on and 
I know there's some different researchers that are working on technologies that are outside of the feather sexing, but there seems to be, I, I don't remember, I think different countries have a different cutoff date, right, for the embryonic stage where they need to be um, decided or not before they proceed. Um, but what other big things are going on? So it, it I think there's a division, right, between the, the pre- I'll say pre-live animal, even though I just really mean the egg stage, right? Egg handling. And then what happens after that? It seems to be like different groups work on different things for both of those. Like the live animal is, has different concerns than the, the the hatchery, if you will. In terms of animal welfare or handling or? Kind, kind of both because it's the, at least the welfare, it's the potential to become an animal. And then what do you do with that animal once it's alive, right? So I think different Com- different countries have different thoughts about when do you consider that sentient, right? Ah, and the, yes. You know, mm-hmm. and then and then what do you do after it is and is macerating okay or do we have to raise it? <laughs> it just seems to be different thought patterns. Yeah, definitely. So we have 21 days to work with, right? And um, yeah, I think for, gosh, I don't want to say specific numbers because I haven't checked myself, but I think for IACUC, for, for research, uh, it's day 13 uh, developmentally for like a necessary method to euthanize. Um, and, you know, especially in the life of a broiler, you know, with their growth rate uh, and being around for six to eight weeks, like a third of their life is in the hatchery environment, in the incubator, and certainly... You know, their embryonic development is a little different, even though it's still the same 21 days. You can probably help out with the metabolomics of, of what would be going on in the egg in a broiler versus a layer. But but even that is quite different. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just crazy. The, the fuel metabolism switches are kind of insane. Mm-hmm. The protein versus carb metabolism. Yeah. <laughs> and that fatty liver and everything and like how in the heck are they alive on that? And um, oh, yeah, yeah it's, so it's amazing. <laughs> something that we were looking at in my lab is sort of embryonic incubator manipulations. Um, we're currently running a project looking at different light wavelengths in the incubator and how that might affect um, development, but also behavior afterwards. I know that there's a lot of lighting is a huge area of research uh, post-hatch, right? Uh, the, the National Chicken Council guidelines used to have five lux for light intensity as the standard. Europe, it's about 20 lux, but um, they were taken out of the standards uh, in the last few years just because there's not enough conclusive research on what is right for light intensity for for chickens and chickens their their eyes are bigger than their brains you know and they i have tetrachromatic vision they have four cone color receptors to r3 they can see into the infrared and the ultraviolet light and i think there's just so much we don't know someday i'd love to have chicken goggles so you could see like a chicken does oh, but I, know. I don't know <laughs> <laughs> <near that. laughs> I think I would be overstimulated. <laughs> I think so too. Virtual reality makes me motion sick, so I don't know if I'd actually do it. But yeah, you would be in big trouble. <laughs> uh, so, so what do you think the role of some of these commitments were coming from companies, or I don't want to say political organizations, but more like bigger governing bodies 
and then the consumers. So how do how do all of those come into play with changing something about poultry production? Like how do you fit welfare into what the consumer wants or requests and then what really works for welfare commercially? I think that laying hens are a really good example of, of this exactly. You know, Prop 12 in Canada was a ballot initiative, which means that the people put it forth and it went into law. So that was clearly at least a societal decision, maybe not consumers because NGOs are involved and a, a lot of animal rights organizations don't want animal agriculture to exist. So they have a lot of the the media presence, but there are a lot of consumers that are concerned and where consumers are becoming more wealthy, obviously with resources and uh, money comes choices, right? So animal welfare is a really sticky conversation to have when you're talking about what a group of people wants versus food security, because oftentimes it costs more for welfare initiatives. So cage-free eggs are more expensive. But when cage free came about, I mean, with broilers versus layers, I was just having this conversation with someone about enrichments because it seems like enrichments are going to be uh, adopted nationally here. We don't know exactly which ones are best. Um, that's what we are doing research wise to look into, right? And I was just saying, you know, putting a platform or installing a different light as an enrichment for broilers is not apples to apples with the entire layer industry having to gut, you know, how their entire systems and then rebuilding a new one. There was no really, you can retrofit some, but that poor, the poor layer industry with that, they just kind of got bombarded. And a lot of the early systems um, weren't the best for welfare. You know, there weren't ramps. So a hen from the top tier would uh, fall and collide and have keel bone damage. And so I think that some, my biggest caution is for consumers is, you know, you think that it's better because they're free from cages, but actually when you look at it, they need certain provisions in there. Yeah, they might have their, their nest boxes and their scratch pads and their perches, but if they can fall and, and break something easily, well then is that better welfare? And this is my, I'll stand on my soapbox here there are certain, some systems have more opportunities to improve welfare than others, but if it is not managed well, none of them are good for welfare. Uh, yes. You know? It really is management that's the key to good welfare. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good point. <laughs> you know, you can let them outside, but then let them outside into a mud puddle, right? So you, there, there's a lot of management and the more extensive systems become, the more management is necessary. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah. Well, let them into a puddle, and then the the friendly carnivor carnivorous birds also know where they are too. So, I I think the uh, hen would rather be alive than dead. But some of the systems just have exactly like you said different management requirements. <laughs> and that's also um, like a, a debate, an ethical debate within with the animal welfare field is is quantity versus quality, right? Like. Would an animal want to be alive? Well, we're a little bit utilitarian because we're raising them for our consumption. So, um, but that is sort of the, gosh, I don't want to say vibe, because, but that's the word I'm thinking of, of, of society today is what actually does the animal want? And I love that. Um, and preference testing is a perfect way to ask that. You give them options and then they tell you. Um, 
there's a little bit, uh, I like to have a little bit of caution with that because certainly humans make decisions that may not be best for their fitness. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes we need to make sure that, you know, I think about labs, you know, lab, labs are the service animals because they're so food motivated, so they're trainable. I learned that from one of my students, actually. They they are trained well and they are food motivated, so that that's a good example. <laughs> I am too. I don't know about trainable, but definitely food motivated. Yeah, yeah, I'm food motivated. Cheese, ice cream, yeah, sign me up. <laughs> uh, so, so what are some of the things that, um, are maybe you can you've kind of already given some examples, but like when you think just about welfare, how would somebody in the welfare space think about it versus somebody in the research versus a consumer? Because the consumer just says, "I don't want the bird." in cages, the academic says, what are, what are the implications of moving this? And then from a welfare standpoint, you say, we, you know, we have these considerations. So, so when someone sees a situation, basically, how do you think like an ethologist? Like what, what does an ethologist think when they approach a situation that may or may not have a welfare concern? So uh, I learned this from one of my mentors. Uh, it depends on the question you're asking, right? Everyone has a different perspective and a different agenda, the consumer versus the researcher. And uh, to kind of answer this and follow up with your question before is it's, it's really interesting talking to different stakeholders because they almost have the same thing to say about each other. You know, the the uh, retailer will say like, well, our customers are telling us that we need to do this. So we go to the supplier and say, hey, you need to do this. And then uh, the supplier might push back or the retailer might push back. And the supplier says, well, the retailer's telling us to do, or the, yeah, the retailer's telling us to do this, but like not how, you know, in the, in the case of enrichments, it's, um, you know, you need to have one per thousand birds. Well, what is one? What size does it need to be? Yeah. Kind of goes into organic standards with the NOP program. Outdoor access is required, but that's about it. You know, there's no size or vegetation requirements or anything like that. So, um, of course, with research, you answer a question and then have way more questions at the end than answers to go forward. But that's the same with, with animal welfare as it evolves. As the researcher, I provide the data and, and the numbers for decisions to be made, but there's always going to be that ethical component. I like to say that uh, we treat animals better in this country than some countries treat their people. So there's just different economic, socioeconomic constraints on what the best animal welfare decision is. Oh, yeah, but that's <laughs> Sage points. <laughs> um, so are there, are there some, um, I know you've been in the, the space for quite a while, but are there some changes that you have just really thought like, wow, that that's a win for everybody, for the birds and for, you know, the people implementing it, you know, anything, maybe even if it was producer driven in a specific barn or just a overall thought change. I know you said that you, you like that people are thinking about animals finally and what the animal might want, but is there anything that just kind of like jumps out to you as like a really, really positive change? Definitely. <laughs> and I talk about it all the time. It's, it's interesting, you know, I don't want to talk about my age too much, but just talking to people about what I do, very rarely now do I hear people say, 
oh, so you cut animals' government checks because that's what welfare is. Like, people actually know what animal welfare is now, <laughs> and I don't hear that. So I actually did recently, and it was the first time in a couple of years, but animal welfare is having a presence. Oftentimes, people confuse it with animal rights, right? So animal rights is giving human rights to animals. Animal welfare is actually the science of how they are doing, not placing the human uh, aspect on them. But uh, animal welfare is up in, in corporate commitments now. And there's an organization called BBFA. It's the Better Biz, Business Benchmark for Animal Welfare. And um, they go on to company websites and look at their what they say about animal welfare and grade them and things like that. And that sheet is now part of some investor portfolios. So literally, investors are looking at animal welfare as some of their as they make some of their decisions. And I love I love that. I like that animal welfare is being a part of investor portfolios. Yeah, that. That does sound like a big win. <laughs> so, so now it's not just me on my soapbox. It's like, well, people, you know, people with money actually do look at this too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you have some support for the things you've been basically researching or living with, or, or you know, actually interacting with producers for the last ten, fifteen years. So that's that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Has there been anything big from uh, like a producer standpoint that they, they taught you that maybe wasn't something that was abundantly obvious? I know you said um, just some of the things that wouldn't be good, like the flight zone and, and whatnot. But I find that some of the, the welfare concerns from producers are just, well, I don't get um, I don't get guidance on how to implement X, Y, Z. So I don't really know what I'm doing. So I did, I did this and I just hope it's acceptable, you know, but they come up with some great ideas as, as far as enrichment goes, but <laughs> yeah, they can be really creative. Um, yeah. I think that there's a lot of considerations that they need to make, especially with broilers is ventilation. If there's something on the floor that impedes ventilation, then that's a concern for them with, you know, litter being so important, important and litter moisture and hot burn and foot pad dermatitis. Um, but I really, like Purdue's approach to enrichments where they have a contest with their growers and just say, hey, you'll get this pot of money, you know, if you enter this contest and build your own. And I love that grower engagement because they know, right, they're going to be creative. And if you incentivize them, they come up with really interesting stuff. Like they, one of the winners was a, just a piece of wood that they could put up on the sidewall and then they pulled it down and it was on like stilts. Like it's easy, useful. It's not too cumbersome. Cleanup is easy. Um, and it's stuff like that. That's just so simple. You know, it seems like in research we get so complicated with things, but there, there really are simple solutions out there. Yeah. It does sound like a good, and it gets stored out of the way. <laughs> or yeah. But I've definitely been taught a lot, uh, you know, where I, I get hyper-focused on something that I think is really important. And then I talk to a grower and they say, yeah, okay, that'll break. <laughs> you know, or, you know, something <laughs> like, okay, but then I'm, this is going to happen if I do that. And it's like, oh, you know, I, I, I just don't know that next step because I've never implemented it. So, but I think that in, in having the conversations with all stakeholders in the same room is really what's going to progress and move the needle on, on animal welfare. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So have 
I, I think this is the trend where a lot of larger companies are actually hiring someone to be on their team for welfare, right? And so they've got somebody with actual input that's employed by the company that kind of understands the company's um, goals and some maybe milestones they want to reach. But I think I think that's a positive thing to have a actual team member that's in the welfare space. <laughs> Definitely. You know, uh, 1999, I think, or right around there was um, the very first time there were any animal welfare standards in the United States. Huh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. So like 23, 24 years is just as long as any company has ever come out with something like that. And that was McDonald's with Temple Grandin. And um so like, it's still very, very new as a, as a science and a field. And it's kind of a, I don't want to say sparkly, but that's the word I'm thinking of because there's always that ethical component, you know, there's, there's just always that sort of gray area where it, it can't, it's not, it's never going to be 100% science. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think it goes back to, you have to decide what, what, what your, what are your, Pillar, I don't want to call them pillars, but what are you going to focus on and what is important to you? And then you have to approach welfare from that standpoint. And that is balance. Not perfect. Yeah. <laughs> so do you, do you have any, um, any like up and coming things that you're excited about? Definitely. Yes. So uh, I can share the information with you on the website, but uh, I will be hosting a symposium. The Center for Food and Animal Wellbeing will be hosting a symposium, which you spoke at last year. Thank you so much. Uh, it's on December 29th uh, here in Northwest Arkansas near campus, but there's also a virtual option as well. It's from 8 to 2 p.m. Central. We have speakers that are not on. It was just poultry last year, but we have some uh, policy, cattle, and equine speakers as well this year. So I'm super excited, and I would love if, if you could join. Um, does your uh, your center is for food animal, right? So you you cover kind of cover all the species. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just went to a rabbit operation yesterday. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's so interesting! I didn't even know they had them here, but yeah, uh, and we're doing cattle research as well. So not just poultry, cool. but yeah. Yeah, I guess that makes sense for the, the food animal, but I always just focus on chickens, obviously. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or turkeys, yeah, poultry that poultry itself. <laughs> um, are are there any other things within the topics that we talked about today that you kinda of wanted to hit home a point before we go do our final three questions we ask everybody? Final point that I want to hit is um management. Like involve the people that are actually the ones interacting with the animals because they're the ones that know, uh, they're the ones that need to care for, they're the caretakers of the animals. So they're the ones that the animal rights organizations have the videos on, you know, create a culture of care because really it's a trickle down effect from the top to the bottom. And, and so management is the key. Yeah, and talk no, to your academics I, to help you provide solutions, I guess. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we have good ideas sometimes. <laughs> or or if we don't know the answer, we can find it because naturals at that. So <laughs> Exactly, yeah. If I don't know the answer, I'm happy to connect you with someone who might, for sure. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. Healthy animals, 
Healthy food, healthy world. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Ivonic Animal Nutrition is committed to ensure food security and safety while reducing the ecological footprint of animal farming. Its products and services use evidence-based solutions that seek to promote animal welfare and reduce reliance on natural resources. All this is underpinned by long-standing industry partnerships and deep customer understanding. Ivonic's focus on efficiency, sustainable, healthy nutrition, and collaborations with livestock farming partners creates value for customers and consumers. Oh, well, awesome. So before, before we wrap up today, I want to ask you the three questions we ask every guest. So the first one is, is what is your favorite poultry resource? So I don't have it with me because I keep it at home, and that's where I usually do a lot of my writing. Uh, but my favorite poultry resource, other than the management guides by Cobb and Legion, I seem to look at those all the time, um, and the NCC standards, National Chicken Council standards. In terms of books, uh, The Behavioral Biology of Chickens by Christy Nichol is something yeah. that I can call almost every time I design an experiment. So oh, it's very interesting cool. book. I think she might even have a Coursera course on chicken behavior. So uh, it's very interesting to me. Yeah. And then the non-poultry one, yes. I call this the Bible. It is called <laughs> Measuring Behavior. Um, and anyone who does, uh, I get a copy for every single student that I have, and it really is such a good resource for just starting from the very beginning. What is your question that you're trying to answer? Do you use scan sampling versus focal? All of those things and like how to look at the data all in that book. Love it. That, that sounds like a great book. I, maybe I got to write that one down. <laughs> we, uh, we have some of those dilemmas as well. So, um, so our, our final question is, if you were going to tell someone how to be successful in the poultry industry, what advice would you give? Take every opportunity presented to you. Um, you know, I've, I always wanted to work with animals. And I remember I was a transfer student, actually. I went to community college to Iowa State. And so my classes were signed up for me, and I had a meat class. And I remember just thinking... I don't want to work with me. I want to work with live animals. And that ended up working in the meat industry for two years. And that experience I, I use in conversation all the time. And I had no idea the value. Wouldn't want to go back to working in a packing plant. But that knowledge that I learned, um, you know, I just never would have thought been so useful time and time again. So take opportunities, talk to people. Uh, don't be afraid of failure and people saying no to you because that will happen. But eventually finding a good advocate that believes in you, will it, you'll get those opportunities. So it's, don't be afraid to try and fail, I guess is my advice. Yeah, that, I think that's amazing advice. <laughs> well, thank you for chatting with me today. This was a, a really fun talk. I always learn a lot with everyone I talk with and you were no exception. I, I love that. I love that 1999 was the, uh, you know, are we going to exist? Is it Y2K or are we going to finally get some welfare? <laughs> you know, so like we might as well do it now because maybe, maybe our computers won't turn on. So <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> oh, well, thank you so much for your time today. I'm sure we'll chat soon. Yeah, you're very welcome. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. <laughs>